Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at the US earnings season bubble, bubbleicious. Is it extreme, is it extraordinary, or is it here to stay? Check out our views and we'll see you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mr. Mitchell Rangel. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. Pleasure to be here. And uh, look, today I want to spice things up. Let's talk a little bit about the US earnings extravaganza. There's plenty going on. The S&P 500, I think three quarters of companies on that market have reported their quarterly earnings. What does it all mean and how do you make a buck from it? It's interesting, isn't it? People are talking about the market being in a bubble. Is it a bubble or is it bubblicious? And is there more to come? <laughs> yeah, it's certainly been an interesting one for the books. And as you quite rightly say, you know, the vast majority of companies have now reported and the beats, uh, let's explain what that means. People, in terms of analysts, expect an earnings level from a company, and then if the company reports its earnings, how much dough it's bought in the door, and, and it's higher than expectations, that's called an earnings beat in its simplest format. And we're seeing that the whole way through. Uh, there's been the majority of companies, as a matter of fact, beating their earnings beat, but I think, uh, sorry, their earnings expectations, excuse me. Let's chat about first day beat. This is a little bit of contextual information on how US earnings season works, because that happens four times a year versus here in Australia. Yeah, so in the US, companies report on a quarterly basis. Uh, in Australia, it typically is six monthly. The idea of doing it quarterly is twofold. Number one is to chunk things down into 90-day frames. Uh, but secondly, it's able to provide the market with a little bit more guidance in terms of this is what we're doing here and now. Six months, especially if you look at the last you know, six to 12 months, is a race to eternity in markets. Um, so providing to those 90-day frames, this is what we've done in sales, this is what our profit has been, and this is how we see the outlook, is all part of being able to provide a more transparent market, which perhaps, I'm not going to say makes life easier for investors, but certainly provides more signposts from which you can make your decisions. Does that then mean there's more volatility in the market? Because more often than not, we're seeing companies come out with their figures, which can be grim or sometimes it can be good, right? Yeah. Typically around earnings time, yes, markets or individual stocks certainly are more volatile because you know, there's a potential for there to be a substantial beat and the price moves up, or, or there's the potential for it to be quite a disappointment and you see the price move down. So volatility is factored in uh, to that and you do see a rise in volatility, which for our particular strategy is a great thing. We love volatility. So what that affords us with is four times a year, an extra big fat opportunity to put a cross on and take a shot at. I love the way you put that. I know we'll chat maybe at the end some surprise strategies that you can actually use to capitalize on this. Before we do that, AB, what really makes up an earnings report? I know we'll get into the nitty gritty in a second, but what are we looking for as an investor as such in those earnings reports that's going to justify a decision either way? I think the key thing, and looking through the lenses that we'll speak of today is quite different, I think, than a lot of traditional investors have looked at. You know, for example, uh, one of the things that uh, in old school investors will look at is a PE ratio, the price earnings ratio. We've, we've talked about this previously. That's the price of the shares divided by their earnings. And effectively what it works out is if you held the share or bought the share today, how many earnings cycles would you need to own the shares for in order to pay for the shares? And typically you might see a market that on average trades at say 22 times earnings. And we're seeing a, a lot of stocks in the US trading at you know, significantly above 27, 28 times earnings. See that in Australia and the banks or Woolworths for that matter uh, right now. So 
on a traditional valuation basis, they look expensive and overvalued. And, and, and I guess that's why some of the doomsayers out there are saying the market's going to crash. Yeah, it will crash one day, but probably not when they're going to call it. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the reality is they're all calling for a crash because the market's overvalued. It's not necessarily overvalued when you look at the earnings that have just come out in the US uh, over the last 90-day period. So things to look out for. What is the number versus consensus? Now, to explain what consensus is, that's where there's a whole bunch of analysts and they all come up with their forecasts, publish them, and that's the average forecast for analysts in America. It's called consensus. So it might be the consensus is that the earnings per share will be X, yes. and that's the average. So $2.50 a share. Okay. And then if the company comes up with $2.65 per share earnings, Happy it's beat uh, the consensus. Word of caution there, analysts tend to be weird people. They tend to huddle together quite a lot. There's a lot of central <laughs> tendency, so it's very, very rare that you'll find an, uh, an outlier where there's an analyst that's gonna come out and go, the company's gonna do big things, or this company is a dog. Most of them sit in the middle. Give you a copybook example of that. There was only one analyst on Wall Street that called Enron uh, as, as a fake business many, many years before it became proven. Everyone else was sitting in the middle going, no, it's not, no, it's not. So just because it's consensus doesn't always mean it's right. Right. Okay? So, so you've got consensus, then you've got the company that reports its earnings. Typically that's delivered via a conference call to the market. So wherever you're in the world, you can sit in and listen to it. You don't have to be you know, in a ballroom listening to the CEO live. It's, it's communicated around the world. Now, an old timer once said to me um, that when you look at a company's financials, a balance sheet is rather like a bikini. It reveals what's interesting but covers up what's crucial. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get some comments on that. And I'm quoting somebody else, that's not my comment. But the, and the reality is when you look at earnings, um, yeah, there's a myriad of things that can be hidden in there. And, and more important than just simply the earnings, oftentimes are the guidance notes that are provided by the company. They'll come out and say, look, yes, we've had a great quarter, there's still a lap of honor and respect that, but we're cautiously optimistic toward the future. And good CEOs are very, very good at dampening expectations down on their businesses. So they're not seeing this huge ratchet up of share price on the back of it. They wanna just deliver that consistent grinding growth. So a good CEO tends to play down a strong as oh, look, we had some good products in the mix, we had exceptional sales, um, you know, and don't expect that to happen again, but it does happen again, but they've dampened the expectations down on the crowds of their hero. It's funny you say that. I actually watched an interview with Jeff Bezos, so mm -hmm. for those people who don't know, CEO of Amazon, also the richest man in the world, I think, at the moment, or Elon Musk, maybe close to. Anyway, long story short, a great businessman, a great CEO. He, he essentially said that when he's looking through his guidance for the, for the company, it's nothing to do with right now, it's always to do with two or three years down the track. Anyone who reports to him is not caring about this earnings that's just come out. It's about 2023, 2024. It's an interesting way to look at things. Absolutely, that's part of Amazon's success. It's always been a forward-looking business. In fact, just to plug, if you're a reader or you use Audible or anything else like that, uh, the Bezos letter is absolutely fantastic. It's the letter that he writes to shareholders each and every year and some of the takeaways in there are absolutely fantastic. Great book to read, irrespective of how big your business is. Uh, order on Amazon and make Amazon. <laughs> so, you know, so the guidance side of it is very, very important. It's about where we're going. And don't forget, as investors, we weigh our shares today for where they're going in the future. So guidance is very, very important. So yeah, um, what we're seeing uh, are companies that are already, by the old-fashioned lens, is extremely overvalued, coming out with results that deliver in spades. I mean, let's take, for example, Apple. People may look, Apple is such an overvalued business. Is that really the case? It is 89 billion dollars in revenue in the last quarter. Just That's not, not, not an annual, a three month period. That's the three month period, 89 wow. billion dollars in revenue, which is a 54% jump on what it did this time last year. And this time last year, people went, oh, it's already overvalued. 
maybe not quite because we're coming out of the low in the market, but by and large, as a business zone value, and it just continues to grind this up. And I think, yeah, more than anything, if you look at the earnings that have come out, you can separate it into two groups, and that is the gigacats, you know, your Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla Fang. to a lesser extent, the Fang stocks, Netflix, if you want to throw that one in there, the gigacap stocks, and then the rest of the market, because it really is a them and us situation right now. And it's, a, it's an interesting and very, very polarized kind of discussion to be having, because I think the rule book is possibly different for the gigacaps versus the rest of the rank and file in market. Well, let's dive into that, because when we're talking about rules being different for the big boys versus the little boys, would it mean tax? I mean, what are we talking about? Look, there are a combination of factors here. And, and if you look at, say, the top 25 companies in the world, uh, or sort of top 20 companies in the world 20 years ago, or 25 years ago, let's take 25 years as an anniversary, um, none of those companies that were in the top 25 uh, companies 25 years ago are in the top 25 now. It's all new businesses. Makes sense. Um, and, and they're not just necessarily new companies. They're companies that are in sectors that didn't even exist 20, 25 years ago. And it's absolutely extraordinary when you start to look at that. You know, and Obviously, that list is headed up by Amazon. You're going to have Google, Facebook, amongst others, uh, that are sitting very, very firmly um, in that top tier. Interestingly enough, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, and Co. Um, ranked ninth uh, currently in terms of the world's biggest companies. Warren Buffett, talk about a committed investment, we just spoke about <laughs> Apple. Um, so uh, currently Berkshire Hathaway have $120 billion exposure to Apple. It's 42% of their overall investment portfolio by value. It's a pretty committed. That's a big commitment, to. absolutely. And, and it's really quite interesting. I, I did an interview um, yesterday on the, uh, for, 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 for the Money Show, Money News uh, with Brooke Cordy uh, on, the, on the radio last night. And we're talking about you know, Warren Buffett and the view that you have to have a diversified portfolio. Diversification is the way to invest money. Now, if we look at 2020, the Nasdaq put on about 42% for 2020. The S&P 500 did about 18, and Berkshire Hathaway only grew by 2% for the year, which is interesting as a, a sidebar. But here's a company that's got 42% of its exposure in one stock being Apple. Yeah, it sort of espouses the virtues of a diversified portfolio. So they found the right bet, and they've been extremely committed to long-term investors, of course, you know, they'll be bought in as an early seed investor way back in the day, and they're reaping the dividends from it now. Uh, but it's just fascinating when you look at that. So yeah, vast moves. Now, those giga caps, here's another interesting one. Louis Vuitton just made it into the top 20. So here really? we are, supposedly in a recession and coming out of it, and everyone's favorite accessory uh, has done rather well on the back of it. Your weekend shopping bonanza is obviously helping push <laughs> into, that, into that top 20. I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> so going back to the giga caps, why have they been so successful? And why perhaps is there a different set of rules for the big guys to everybody else? And this may well be controversial, but I think the facts speak for themselves. If you run in an entity where you see taxes being an option, not compulsory, if you want to pay tax, you can, but if you want to, you don't have to. How different would your life be? So for our listeners and viewers today, if you decided I'm not to pay tax, how much more earnings would you have relative to what you have on a net basis? Probably a lot more. You would if you were paying tax. Because government's got to take its slab. Wherever you're watching, if you're in Australia, you're paying 47, 48% of tax, maybe it's lower than that. If you're in the US, probably going to be in the 40s and so on. So these large companies in terms of the corporate structures that they have, take Netflix, for example, it paid 1% federal tax in the US last year. That's, a, that's not much. Mm. And, and yet you've got the Biden administration going out, we're going to tax high income earners, we're going to introduce high levels of capital gains tax on, 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 on the people that are big income earners. 
but will just turn a blind eye to companies that effectively aren't paying their fair share. How and why? And it, and it goes on, it's not on a federal level either. If you look at Netflix, and I'm not picking on Netflix for any other reason other than it's in the media right now, yeah, you're also getting state subsidies to, they're, they're, they're just about to open a new production facility. And these are why these businesses are so smart. They are forward looking. Building content in California, high tax state, labor costs are very high, real estate prohibitively expensive. So they want to build a, uh, a facility for making more content, given the fact that they, they need to build their own content now. So they're going to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I bet there aren't many people that have been there. Have you been to Albuquerque? I have. You have? Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right near Santa Fe, right? Santa Fe is a little bit further uh, up the road, and uh, then you go on into the bottom of Colorado. Interesting place. I've been to a lot of places. Albuquerque, yeah, there's an interesting place. <laughs> um, so they're moving a production facility there because you know, the New Mexican government, are, or the New Mexico government, are offering them significant subsidies to come and move there to create jobs, which makes sense, but it's also going to be pay a lot of tax. Maybe if they pay more tax, that would be a good thing for everybody too. So this is why that differentiation is happening. And you go, well, why don't they just impose tax on the gig caps? And these, the, these companies, and I don't, I'm not a lobbyist and I don't have a barrier to push, but these companies have got to the stage where they are so big that they are just impervious to any government in the world. You think about, um, you know, Apple is sitting on a volume of cash which equals 75% of the world's um, cash reserves in, in 75% of the world's countries. Uh, it's just held by Apple right now. It's unfathomable, really, and it's being reflected in their earnings. And we're seeing huge moves on earnings reports, and yeah. uh, I've run the numbers on this AB. Hundreds of millions in one case. Crazy. Look at, look at Google's revenue, look at Amazon's revenue. I mean, these are unfathomable numbers. We've never been in a world, and okay, everything gets bigger over time. We appreciate that. But we've never been in a world where those sorts of numbers are thrown around and that's just what our earnings were for the quarter. And so we're in a different paradigm where we've got stocks that on a traditional matrix are massively overvalued, yet they're still capable of continuing to pump out earnings growth beyond what Wall Street expects and growing at the same time, both in terms of market cap, in terms of profitability, and of course, those tentacles into society, and in the case of certainly you know, social media and search engines, the ability to start shaping our view based on the agenda they want to push. Big situation. So are they in fact overvalued comes then the next question, because if they are producing such strong earnings and growth, mm. and they're challenging normal PE rules as such, of 22 times earnings, whatever it mm. may be, are they overvalued? Well, if they continue to deliver earnings growth, they're the best value in the world, they're undervalued. Exactly right. right. And it's a brave person that would say that with a company that's trading at 25, 30, 35, 40 times earnings. You look at Tesla in terms of evaluation, in terms of its price. You know, Tesla's also in the top 10 companies in the world by market capitalization. Yeah, it only makes, what, 180, 200,000 cars a quarter compared to Toyota or General Motors or you know, a raft of other companies around the world that produce vastly more vehicles, sell many, many, many times more vehicles, but it's a business arm. And aren't worth anywhere near as much. And that brings us to the crux of this when it comes to valuations. We're buying businesses today for what they could be worth in the future. I say could because, you know. We don't know. We don't know what they're gonna be. Right. And if you're buying into these tech companies in particular, ah, technology companies gonna be a bigger or smaller part of the future. And you know, many people are like saturated. And then COVID comes along and online shopping just goes that next leg up. And because no one's going anywhere and everything's doing everything online, you start to look things up in Google, which is where the advertising revenue is spinning off it. And needless to say, you need to upgrade all of your devices to enjoy all this stuff while you're at home, which is where Apple then kicks in. And you've got to watch some streaming content. So Disney, more traditional business, or Netflix are piling in on the back of it. And, and they've been perfectly placed for the storm that we've seen of this pandemic. 
but they may well be perfectly placed for what happens on the post side of it because all of those businesses are exceptionally good at reinvesting in themselves and coming up with the next thing. You know, okay, uh, for example, Apple's um, product line. Okay, you know, it sells more phones than anybody else on the planet. So now you've got the accessories around the phone, you've got your buds, you've got your watch so that you don't have to look at the phone when you're running or whatever it may be. And it's just the next spin-off. And of course, if you've got the watch or the, or, or the tablet, you're gonna to wanna to have your music coming through Apple Music, aren't you? And then there's the next thing that comes from it. So they're constantly finding new markets within their ecosystem or creating a whole new ecosystem within that to then build into. I mean, it's fascinating. And you know, when you see that insight that these kinds of companies have in terms of their vision for the future, they're not necessarily overvalued when you consider just how big an opportunity the future could be. You look at something like Google and you go, look, it's overvalued. How many people don't have full internet access right now in the world? And it's a staggering percentage if you look that up. It's probably some like 35, 40% of the world's population, I think maybe slightly more than that, don't have regular access to the internet, but they will. And when they do get access to the internet, whose search engine are they going to use? So Google. before you even start, there's another, there's almost double the size of the market that you currently have. And then within that, you're going to provide other, it's just incredible. It's crazy. So are they overvalued? No, I don't know. I don't think they necessarily are when you look at where the future could possibly go. But at the same time, I do think there is a return to that core valuation process to say, okay, this is a company that we're putting a truckload of money in right now for what it might do in the future. So we're taking a punt. It's a, get. it's a gamble. It's a big gamble. It's overvalued on a traditional metric. But if it's the kind of company that's got demonstrable earnings, your Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, whether you can see that there's a revenue line, that's one thing. When you've got companies that are hyper extended in terms of their valuation, but you can't see where the earnings are gonna come from to support that. It may be the next big thing, but may not be. They're the dangerous stocks to watch out for. It's, it's, it's an amazing story, and tech has performed so well over the last year, as you mentioned, and it's being reflected in their earnings, as it has as well, with US banks have been particularly strong, industrials, energy, financials, it's been great. Overall, I think earnings per share has been beaten, uh, sorry, it's beaten its consensus by 23% yeah. in the whole market. I mean, these are big, mm. big beats of consensus. That's right, it's not just limping over the line and going, oh, no. we're slightly <laughs> better than we expect. You know, a couple of holdings, you know, more often than not, I've got both of these in my portfolio. Wells Fargo is a very good example of that. It's the bank in the US and it's a very good bellwether for the economy. Yeah, that thing's gone from like you know, 37 bucks to you know, ballpark around about 44, $45 a share right now uh, over a fairly short order beats its expectations and you think, well, you know, the chart, the trajectory that the company is on, the trajectory that the US economy is on, yes, there's inflation there, but that's probably a good thing uh, in terms of the level it's at just now. Um, where's it going next quarter? Probably higher again. You look at Starbucks, same thing. People are gonna start getting out and about, drinking more black liquid, whatever they call it, in their shops and away we go. But, you know, they'll reinvent themselves in different ways too as they've continued to do over time. You know, Starbucks, with their merchandising agreement with Nestle to sell their stuff in bottles in supermarkets in case people stop going to their stores. Absolutely inspired decision. That I think it's one of Howard Schultz's uh, latter decisions before he retired. Absolutely brilliant de-risking the business because your sales volume is there, maybe you're getting a smaller percentage and you haven't got to rely on the foot traffic, which obviously has been compromised during COVID. Absolute genius. And that's why these guys pull down the big numbers that they do as well. Um, maybe some people might argue slightly overpaid, or maybe if they're taking their pay in stock, as many US CEOs tend to do, it's obviously a lot more tax effective. Sure. Either. It's saying, I'm all in on this. I back myself to come up with good decisions, and if I'm right, I'm gonna make a monster. Elon Musk being a good example of that. Jeff Bezos being a great example of that. Um, that you know, you're all in, and if you've got that alignment with the CEO and the business, and they're looking at growth going out there, who knows where it's gonna go. It's only constrained by our imagination before these guys 
come up with the next big thing, which provides another leap in earnings, and we will sit there gasping, why did we get out of that one, it was $130. <laughs> it's a great point to make an even better observation. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle to put there, AB, obviously as an economist by trade, you certainly got this stuff down pat. The question I'd like to ask you to finish this broadcast is, how do you make a buck from this? How do you trade earnings? You've got to be in. You've got to be in the market. And a lot of people um, shy away, you know, it's already done its thing, I'm getting to the party too late. And look, in some respects, you may well be getting to the party a little bit too late on certain stocks. And in just the same way if we're having this argument over crypto, you know, is, too, is now too late to get in? I don't necessarily think it is, but some people would have that argument, it should have been before. Sure. And I'd always say it should have been before, that's why we've been doing this for the last 20 years, it should be 20 <laughs> years ago before we started doing it. So, you know, turning back to um, your question, how do you trade um, earnings specifically? Sure. And trading earnings as a stock investor is playing red or black because you're either going to be absolutely right and make some money, or you're going to be absolutely wrong and lose some money. It's very sure. rare in a more volatile period, which earnings are, um, that if you hold a stock, it's going to come out unscathed on the other side. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. So there are specific stra uh, strategies that we use. One of them is in the derivative space. Uh, it's called a straddle. It's a, it uses two levels of options to take a directional view up and at the same time take a directional view down on the basis that if it moves up, you're going to make money. If it moves down, you're going to make money. The only thing you're not going to profit from is if it stays still or, or, or doesn't move by that much. Sure. Now, there are a few more mechanics in there. You don't just buy a call and a put. There's a few more things to do in there to ensure that you're loading the dice. I and mean, we've had a great run through earnings. Give us a couple that we've knocked out of there. I know Intel Corp, we cleaned up around 60 to 70% profit, something like that. How many, day, how many days was it? Five days in the market. Very, Five very short term. 60, 60% return. Not bad. And others too. What else are we having to keep about? Western Digital Corp come out. I mean, there's been plenty out there. There's mm -hmm. a and our clients are getting rallied and, and really getting behind the straddle because it can be so profitable. We've had a lot of good clients, the Webers, for example, mm. who have made a killing on straddles. Yes. And, and this is the thing, it's about using the right strategy at the right time. There's a time to be a buy and hold investor, there's a time to be a swing trader, there's a time to be a scalper, there's a time to use more exotic derivative-based strategies. And that timing requires training. There's no one size fits all with this. And if you're loading your game up, in the right way, with the right strategy, with the right risk management, which is a key thing on this, what to do if you're wrong, um, you're gonna make great money. If you just do what you've always done in an earnings season, you're gonna get chopped around. Um, if you use traditional measures, PEs in an earnings season, or in, in, in the case we've been talking about, PE Gearte, um, it just doesn't apply because the rules for those companies are different. Their earnings growth is beyond anything that a traditional analyst would better put their hat on. You know, five, think about you know, Woolworths, you know, 5% sales growth a year, and then you've got something that puts on 60% uh, revenue growth, like Apple for the quarter. 5% per year, 60% in the quarter. So you can't use traditional lenses on those sorts of stocks. You have to look at something different. So I guess it's that future index that you have to look for, which we call the tea leaves, uh, or, the, uh, or, the, or the magic dice, or the uh, octopus, <laughs> or whatever maybe. The reality is you do need a different strategy to do that. Or just say, look, I know it's gonna be volatile through earnings because there's big news flow here. How can I best capitalize on that whilst managing my risk at the same time and pulling a straddle out of the bag makes an awful lot of sense, a lot of dollars too when you talk about Intel and 60% in five days and that's just one example, probably eight or 10 that we've done over the last week. Exactly right. Amy, look, thank you very much for your take on this. It's, it's been a lot to go through there, but certainly a lot of great information. It puts things into perspective as to where we're heading, so thank you very much. Bubble or Bubblelicious, what do you reckon? Bubblelicious. <laughs> you? Bubblelicious every day of the week. Bubblelicious it is. Thanks very much, Amy. Pleasure to meet you. There you have it, guys. Give us a rating and a review, and we'll see you next week.